Good morning. For the scripture reading this morning, if you would grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you'll find one in the chair in front of you or, or uh, the chair you're sitting on. It's underneath. It's on page 1,152. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we will be reading verses 12 through 28. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. So that God may be all in all. I asked to have that scripture read right before I came up here so that the phrase, so that God may be all in all, would still be ringing in your ears. The passage that we're going to look at today shows the connection between what God is doing in the universe and what he wants to do in your own heart and in your own life. I'm eager to preach to you today and I'm praying that God will use this sermon to help all of us grasp the massive purposes of God and that we will see how our own lives and our own meager efforts are connected to those eternal purposes of God. So if you haven't already, Start turning in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll start in verse 16. Those of you that are using one of the hardcover Bibles that we provide under the chairs in front of you, you'll find today's passage on page 1158. Once again, that is 2 Corinthians 5, 16 on page 1158. Two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to preach from the previous five verses, verses 11 through 15. And in those verses, we saw that the gospel enables selfless ministry. And we were careful to define both selfless and ministry appropriately. 
so that we now know that ministry properly understood is the task of disciple-making that has been given to everyone who claims to be a Christian. And we know that selflessness, properly understood, is not a total rejection of the self. It's not a hatred of one's own body, but it is a temporary self-denial for the purpose of obtaining greater joy and happiness later on. So to put it another way, if you're a Christian, Christ is your Lord. He's your master, and he has commanded all of us to build our lives around the purpose of making disciples. You follow God, and you help others do the same. That is God's expectation of you, and you must deny yourself in order to do that. You have to say no to some things that you would say yes to if you were not following Jesus, but also... We follow the example of Jesus. This is the other side of selflessness. We follow Jesus' example who endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. In just a second, I'll read some verses from Hebrews 12 that talk about that. You're in the right place in your Bibles. We'll get to that passage in a minute. But we also sang about this. We sang about the wonderful cross that bids us to come and die, and then we find that we truly live. I think that's based on Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, which says... Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who did something. It's about to tell us why he was willing to suffer, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Selfless ministry as a Christian involves discipline, pain, suffering, but not without reason. We give up temporal pleasure for eternal joy, just like Jesus. Paul said in Romans 8 that I consider the sufferings of this present time not to be worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. And the psalmist, in the midst of his prayer for God to preserve him and for God to be his refuge, He expressed faith by saying in Psalm 16, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Suffering then glory. Death then life. Death then resurrection. Christian, do you believe that that is your end? Do you believe that every sacrifice you make in order to make disciples will be worth it in the end? Or are you stuck, living for yourself and unable to find joy and purpose because you don't see what God is doing? Well, may this passage of scripture and this sermon help you because God is doing some big, big things and he wants you to be a part of it. You've got your Bibles open. Before we read that passage, I'm going to ask us to slow down and just pray silently, alone, for just a few seconds. Let's ask God to reveal himself this morning through the word. So let's just close close all our eyes and pray individually, and then I'll pray out loud before reading this passage.
Father, we ask you to bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Pray that you would work in spite of the deliverer and in spite of the hearers. Cause us to see what's really there. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The big idea today for your notes is that God is remaking everything in Christ. As I said at the beginning, we need to see the connection between what God is doing in creation and what he wants to do in your life. Some Christians have a really easy time lamenting, even complaining at times about the increasingly secular and evil world that we live in, but sometimes we don't really care about the evil that's in our own heart. Because if you bring up abortion or the sexual revolution of the last couple decades, or maybe even that the public schools are terrible and indoctrinating children with a secular worldview, some Christians get righteously angry about that. But what doesn't bother them is the residual sin that's left in their own life. It's really easy to get mad at Washington. It's really hard to see and hate your own sin. Can I ask you all a question that's been bugging me for the last couple weeks? Why do we think that God wants to rule the nations more than he wants to rule our hearts? Because if God decided to end all of those evils in the world tomorrow, it would be no problem for him to do that. If he decided this afternoon that the leader of every nation would bow down to him and worship him, couldn't he do that? Doesn't the Bible say that Jesus is going to show up on a white horse and rule with a rod of iron? We know that's going to happen if we believe the Bible. It's going to happen in, in his timing in the future. But why do we think that ruling the realm of this world is more important to him than ruling the realm of your heart and your mind and even your imagination? Why is it easier for us to get outraged at the big sins that are out there, things that we can do almost nothing about, by the way, and we don't even care about the sins that we commit every day? Why, why is that? We know that God cares about our marriages and our friendships and our relationships. We know that he cares how we spend our time. 
we know that he wants us to honor and respect the government. And we know that in reality, measured objectively, we are failures at this. In God's providence last week, Ben Edwards, our guest speaker, challenged us not to compare ourselves with other people, but to compare ourselves with the righteous standard of God. Washington might need Jesus. The state of Michigan might need Jesus. The Ypsilanti School Board might need Jesus. But so do we. And in spite of all our failures, Jesus forgives. And he offers forgiveness to all. Only some accept it. But those that accept it aren't just forgiven once. They're forgiven over and over and over. Because if God has chosen you, he is not going to give up on you until he has finished the work that he started in you. God is remaking everything in Christ. He started doing this. One day he will finish changing the world and changing the nations, but he's also remaking you. And today we're going to look at three renovations that are happening in your life if you're a true believer in Jesus. These all come from the passage that was read. Renovation number one is that in Christ you have a new perspective. Three renovations, three new things. In Christ, you have a new perspective. Paul says in verse 16, therefore from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. So let's start at the end of that verse, the end of verse 16 and work backwards. might be easier to see the point that Paul is making. He says at the end of the verse, we know him or we know Christ in this way no longer, meaning we no longer recognize Christ according to the flesh. And we could interpret this verse a few different ways for the sake of time and for the the sake of staying focused on the main point. I'll just tell you that what Paul means by this is that he views Jesus in a fundamentally different way because of the truth that was just proclaimed in the previous verses, that Jesus died and rose again. Because of the resurrection, there's a new perspective. Paul has a new perspective on Christ because of the gospel. What's new about it? How did he view Christ before? According to the flesh. What does that mean? As merely a man, according to what Paul's senses and experiences told him? Because Paul, before he was converted, he was so blinded by his zeal for the law that he believed Christ to be a mere man. Somehow he missed the fact that Jesus was the Messiah that Paul had spent decades studying about in studying the scripture. The Pharisees were supposed to be waiting for the Messiah and they missed it because of their zeal for the law. Paul judged Christ according to appearances, according to his earthly understanding and worldly wisdom. As followers of Christ, we ought not to keep judging by that standard not judge by appearances. There's a deeper truth in the universe than what you can see with your eyes and see and hear with your ears. And that truth is obtained by faith. Paul has been telling the Corinthians for a while that they should not judge according to appearances. Let's let's look at some examples. You've got your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians 5. Look up just a few verses to verse 12, which was preached a couple weeks ago. We are not again commending ourselves to you, 
but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Look up a few more verses to verse 7 of chapter 5. For it says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Look up a few more verses to the end of chapter 4. Verse 17, for light momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. And there's several more times in 2 Corinthians that, uh, that Paul would allude to this, that we should judge by faith, not by sight, or by truth, and not by appearance. It would be redundant to mention all of them. So let's consider just one more well-known passage. You don't need to turn there. This one's in 1 Corinthians, and it'll be on the screen for you. This one does not explicitly say uh, or mention judging by sight versus appearance, uh, but it clearly shows that the power of the cross is not seen by everyone. I'll show you what I mean. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 20. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, maybe we could say uh, those who have a different perspective, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? I bring up all these verses because we have to remember that Paul is being attacked by false apostles who are claiming that Paul is a faker. They're claiming that Paul has been dishonest about his travel plans, and if Paul really loved you, he would have acted differently. That's what his opponents are saying to the Corinthians. But Paul is saying appearances can deceive, and he's using Christ as an example. Before we were saved, Jesus meant nothing to us. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit regenerated us that our eyes were open to see who Jesus really is. And by the way, that's why the first half of the verse makes sense. We recognize not just Jesus, but no one according to the flesh. Knowledge of the gospel, when it's received by faith, not by sight, but by faith. When it's received by faith, it doesn't only change our perception of Jesus, it changes our perception of everyone. You cannot look at people the same way when you're in Christ. Part of coming to Christ is recognizing that you bring nothing to the table. There's nothing lovely about you that, God, that caused God to decide to save you. Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God also was not lacking in anything. He didn't, uh, he didn't need friendship or companionship with you, and that's why he decided to save you. The Father, Son, and Spirit were totally satisfied from eternity past in their own divine essence. God did not need you or me. In fact, we were repulsive to him because of our sin. That's why the gospel message is offensive. It reveals us humans to be the lowly, unneeded, created beings that we are. We live in a world that says humans are basically good. People are basically good. Bad things are a result of oppression and inequality. But that's not what the Bible teaches. 
God says all bad things are a result of sin and all are guilty sinners. So faith in the gospel gives us a new perspective on what other people really are. They're not neutral or good. They're sinners who are blind. They're sinners who have needs. They're sinners who must be reconciled to God just like we were. And we still would be without Jesus. This is how you must be viewing people in order to do ministry. This new perspective that we have is, as a result of faith in the gospel is not the only new thing about us. In fact, our new perspective flows out of a much larger truth, which is in verse 17. In Christ, you have a new identity, verse 17. That's the second renovation. In Christ, you have a new identity. The verse says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Your perspective isn't the only thing that's new. You are new. There have been long debates and much ink has been spilled trying to figure out what makes you, you. What are you? Are you your body? Are you your thoughts? Are you your actions? Maybe your relationships or your experiences? What makes you, you? Maybe some have heard the story of the ship of Theseus. The short version is this. Imagine a boat. This is fun, right? Imagine a boat that goes on a long, long journey. The journey is so long that piece by piece, the boat needs to be replaced. When every piece of the boat has been replaced, it's just sailing and sailing, it's getting worn out, the plank needs replaced, the mast needs replaced, every little piece needs replaced at different times, and they replace, replace them one at a time. Once every piece of that boat has been replaced, is it still the ship of Theseus, or is it a new ship once every piece has been replaced? Just to complicate matters, what if someone else was sailing behind the original ship on that long, long journey, collecting the discarded pieces of the ship, and they use those discarded pieces to build another ship? Which one is the ship of Theseus? Is it the first one or the second one? Now, one answer that you could give is, who cares? It's a good answer. It's a fictional boat. It doesn't matter whether the original is the ship of Theseus or if the essence of the ship is somehow bound up in the discarded parts that are reassembled. And you're right to some extent that it doesn't really matter. But it does matter if you don't know what you are. Because something similar to the ship of Theseus is happening in our own bodies. We know that our cells are being constantly replaced. In fact, Every seven to ten years, every single cell in your body would have died off and been replaced. So every decade, you have a new body. Are you a new person when that happens? If you think that humans are just physical, I think you would have to say yes. Well, this, this worldview taken to its logical conclusion, we're just physical. If we take that all the way to its logical conclusion, we have... We end up with vain bodybuilders and anxious anorexics, don't we? What if you found your identity 
in your relationships. I'm a dad, or I'm a mom, I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a grandparent. That's who I am. That's what makes me, me. That sounds good. It sounds more wholesome than finding your true self in your physical body. But those relationships aren't eternal either. And what happens when tragedy strikes and you're left without the person with whom your identity was bound? It's a gift to have relationships. It's a gift to have a healthy body. But that's not who you are, Christian. Let's read verse 17 one more time. I know it's a well-known verse. Let's look at it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You have two options. You're either in Christ or in Adam. We're all born in Adam. We're all born sinners, chasing our identity and whatever is most appealing in that moment. But all of that has passed away for those who are in Christ. Having a new identity in Christ means you're free from the bondage of those old desires and free from the slavery of viewing everything according to the flesh. It means you're able to spend your life for others instead of grasping at experiences for yourself. And identity in Christ means that all those failures, no matter how old or how recent, are legally forgiven in Christ. It means that you can sleep hard knowing that your father will take care of your real needs. And it means you can work hard because you're starting to see that you, know how, you now have an eternal purpose to accomplish. We certainly have meaningful work to do. One of our core values in the four direction disciple is serve because we believe that God has called every Christian to serve in some way. Resting in Christ is not putting your feet up and waiting for the rapture. Paul has been building up to verses 18 through 21 in order to emphasize that not only do we have a new perspective in Christ and a new identity in Christ, but we also have a new purpose in Christ. That's the third and final renovation that Paul gives in this passage, and it comes from verses 18 through 21. Those verses say, Now all these things, the old things, the new things, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Those of us that have put our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, though the forgiveness was 100% free, accomplished and paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus, doesn't require anything of us in order to receive it, yet, once we have received it, it transforms us and gives us a new purpose. You don't get to choose the freedom from hell without also accepting the new purpose. That's not how it works. It's, this is an imperfect illustration, but bear with it. 
It, that would be kind of like if you were offered a promotion at work. You get told that it, it's going to be longer hours. It's going to be more responsibility. But you'll also get some more freedom to make decisions, more pay, better benefits. So you have that promotion offered to you. You can't say that you'd like the raise in pay and the better benefits, but I don't want the extra responsibility. Now, like I said, this is not a perfect illustration, but there's some parallels with the Christian life. You get forgiveness for free, but wherever there is true forgiveness from God, there is a true disciple who will follow God. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. I don't know who I'm quoting there. It's just in my head. It's not even in my notes, but I'm quoting somebody. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. There's always fruit. When there's faith, there's fruit. The purpose that Paul says he has been given, the purpose that I would argue you and I have been given, is called the ministry of reconciliation in this passage. We exist to reconcile. Reconciling is making peace where there was once hostility. We exist to make peace. Okay. Some of you think maybe we're teetering on something unhelpful. We exist to make peace. Is that true? Now this passage is simply not talking about peacemaking in the sense of conflicts in the global political landscape. Right? There's stuff going on in Ukraine. There's stuff going on in the Middle East. Christians should have an opinion on that, informed by the Bible and their biblical worldview. But that's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about the kind of peace that, uh, that is uh, super, excuse me, that is uh, spiritual, spiritual peace, not physical peace. When Paul says that he exists to make peace, he's not saying that he's a war pacifist. The kind of peace that he is talking about is spiritual. And not only is this spiritual peace more relevant to our lives than a conflict halfway around the world, something else that we can't really do anything about as individuals. This kind of peace is also more relevant to the Ukrainians and Israelis who are lacking physical peace, not to diminish what's going on, but this kind of peace that we are called to make is of another higher kind. To reconcile is to make peace where there was hostility. And just as we can be confident that his main point is not for Christians to become uh, political activists or war pacifists, we can also be confident that he doesn't want us to become worldview pacifists either. What's a worldview pacifist? I made it up, so I better define it. A worldview pacifist is a Christian who believes that the Bible is true, but doesn't think it's the Christian's job to call on others to live out the Christian worldview. A Christian worldview pacifist wants to live and let live. Don't infringe on my freedom, and I won't infringe on yours. That doesn't sound so bad, but it's a myth. Neutrality is not possible in a fallen world. This live and let live mindset has resulted in really tolerant Christians. Look, look how tolerant we are, Lord. Watch us as we let your enemies chip away at the foundations of society and steal our children to become idol worshipers. Aren't we tolerant? 
Why do I bring this up? Because I don't want you to see ministry of reconciliation and think that reconciliation is meant to be sought between the church and the pagan society that we live in. No. It's not about us reconciling with them. It's about them reconciling with God. Our job as Bible-believing Christians is not to idolize a peaceful relationship with the society that hates God, but rather to call on them to acknowledge the lordship of our Savior, Jesus Christ, because he is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father without him. That Jesus is king of all, not just of us. Romans 13 is still in the Bible. We respect our government. We pray for our government. We did this morning. We submit to our government in every area that God has given them authority. But the final allegiance of a Bible-believing Christian is not with any civil government. Paul will say later in this letter, chapter 10, verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. So this is not a call to physical violence. It's not according to the flesh. Verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. May we not watch idly by, indifferent to the worldview that ignores the fact that Jesus is King. So I've told you only what the ministry of reconciliation is not. It's not war pacifism. It's not worldview pacifism, but it is something. Verse 19, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. So remember, this renovation is that we have a new purpose in Christ. This means that being in Christ didn't only save you. We're justified in Christ, which means we have a righteous legal standing with God, and we will enjoy the benefits of that righteous standing for all eternity. But not only that, here's the thing that matters even more here and now. The gospel that saves you is also the gospel that sends you. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors, as though he were making an appeal through us. Behold your purpose, Christian. Be a vessel through whom God can make an appeal to the unbelieving world. Your purpose is to tell the world that you live with and work with, you interact with every day, that they can be reconciled to God because they are his enemies, just like we were. But through the cross, he is offered peace. And then verse 21 is the content of the message. You're an ambassador. You have a message for them. What, what is the message? Well, it's in verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made his son Jesus, the only sinless one who ever walked the earth, to be sin. Galatians says he became a curse for us. He became sin on our behalf or in our place. We should have been nailed to the cross. 
we should have descended to hell. Why did Jesus do that for us? The verse says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took our sin so we can take his righteousness. That's the message we have as ambassadors. An ambassador lives and works in a culture not his own in order to perpetuate the interests of his king. That's us. We're working in this alien country, which is at war with the true king, longing for our heavenly dwelling. But while we are here, we're spreading the word of reconciliation. Peace is being offered. And we're hoping to bring others with us to our heavenly country. And it would be a shame to not formalize this invitation because not everyone under the sound of my voice is in Christ. Not everyone has submitted to the lordship of Jesus and accepted his free offer of forgiveness. So to you, we say, not I only, but this church, we say, be reconciled to God. Don't wait or hesitate, but also don't be flippant. The next two verses, the ones that start off chapter 6, say, and working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Anyone who wants to receive the free gift of peace with God is invited to do that today. Turn from your sins and be reconciled to God. And if you want to do that, but you feel like you need someone to talk you through it, there are many people here, including myself, anyone you've seen on the platform today, grab a deacon, grab someone that brought you. We would love to open a Bible with you and talk you through how you can start your relationship with Jesus. But don't leave today without taking care of whatever the Lord is asking you to take care of. Talk to one of us or not, it's your choice. But if you do decide to start your relationship with God today, we'd love to hear about it so that we can pray for you and start discipling you. But many here are believers. Many here have done that. Many here have been believers for quite some time. And I also don't want to leave you without also being challenged. So I've said that in Christ, you have a new perspective, a new identity, and a new purpose. And there isn't one of us here that lives as if that is true perfectly all the time. If I were to ask you, what is your biggest struggle as a follower of Christ? I think it would fall into one of these three categories. In all your struggles, as you seek to walk with Jesus and help others do the same, I think you're struggling with either perspective, identity, or purpose. So think through in your head, what if I actually asked you? What if I said, what is your biggest struggle? You might say something about certain people in your life or a certain circumstance in your life. And I think that's a problem with your perspective because people and circumstances are not really our problem, are they? Sin is our problem. There are no people and no circumstances that require you to sin. This doesn't mean that it's wrong for you to struggle in those circumstances or to struggle with those people. That's just natural. But we want to have a supernatural perspective, not according to the flesh. Hopefully you realized as we walked through the passage that the reason we can respond not according to the flesh 
is because of the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus rose again, the rules changed. Ever since Genesis 3, there's been a curse on the world and on mankind, and part of that curse says all men will die. And implicit in that is that they're going to stay dead. Jesus died, but he rose never to die again. Now, did some other people in the Bible rise after death? Yes, but they also died again and stayed dead that time. Not Jesus. To connect and to see how the resurrection of Jesus is the thing that gives us the new perspective, we need to connect verse 15 from two weeks ago with verse 16 from today. Verse 15 says that he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And then big word, verse 16, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Jesus died and rose again, did it on behalf of those who would trust in him, meaning that others will get to share in that death and resurrection. So he broke the rules. People who die are supposed to stay dead. Jesus is like, not anymore. You can rise with me now. New rules in Christ. That's another renovation. There's new rules. That changes things. Verse 16 is emphasizing the fact that it should change the way we view other people. We recognize no one according to the flesh. C.S. Lewis taps on this idea in his uh, essay, The Weight of Glory, when he says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people, he says. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life to ours is as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with work with, marry, snub, and exploit. The eternal life that Jesus offers doesn't just change your relationship with him, though it certainly does. It also ought to change your relationship with and perspective of other people. Not everyone would say, though, that their biggest struggle has to do with perspective. Some of you look inward when you're asked about your biggest struggle. We all say these types of things. I'm just not extroverted enough to be a good evangelist, or, or maybe even I'm not extroverted enough to be a good church member. Or I'm too old to focus on disciple making. Or I'll always struggle with anger. I'll always struggle with anxiety or lust or depression. It runs in our family. I'm always going to struggle with it. Or I'm just not the kind of mom I want to be. I'm not the kind of husband I want to be. I wish I was smart like my coworker. I wish I was pretty like my friends. You know, all of these statements start with I. Your identity needs to be more about Christ and who he is and what he has accomplished, not about you and who you are and what you have done. What you have, what do you have that you did not receive from God? Christian, who you are is a sinner who has been reconciled. A former enemy of God made a son or daughter of the king. 
a co-heir with Christ. Yet all of our emotional energy is bound up in the cars we drive, the homes we live in, and the friends we have, and the books we read, and the job we work. Those are just not who we are. What are we doing defining ourselves by these hobbies? Your favorite team, or your latte art, or your the big buck, or that big fish, that perfect brisket, your open floor plan with the best feng shui. I'm trying to be a little silly on purpose. It's okay to laugh at me. But if you really believe the Bible, you are royalty with all the privileges and duties that a son or daughter of the king would have. A few years meditating on that will change how you identify yourself. Lastly, if I asked you what your biggest struggle was, you might start talking about purpose and meaning. And I don't want to be redundant, but a life in Christ doesn't only change your perception of other people and where you find your identity, it also changes your purpose. What are you for? And really, it all boils down to accomplishing good works. I know we're sometimes afraid to talk about good works because we believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, so that no one can boast. That's talking about before we're saved. That's talking about salvation. We're saved by grace, but we're saved for good works. We need to attach Ephesians 2.10 to Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. But it keeps going. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, before Adam. (laughs) The good works that you need to fulfill this afternoon were prepared by God before sin entered the world says that we should walk in them is how the verse ends. In our passage today, those good works are encompassed in the phrase ministry of reconciliation. A mature follower of Christ ought to be able to list out their God-given roles and responsibilities and draw straight lines to passages of scripture that inform, even dictate those roles and responsibilities. Work, family, church, personal walk with God, eating, sleeping, learning, resting. How we do these things should be informed by scripture and we should be able to do them in a different way than an unbeliever does them. In Christ, your purpose is new. Your identity is new. Your perspective is new. God is remaking everything in Christ. Let's work with him and not against him. And let's pray to that end. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that... Everything I said or anything I may have missaid would be corrected by the Holy Spirit and by individuals in this church carefully studying Scripture. The Bible has authority, not the person who says it. Help us to, as we study your word, see what's there and see how you would want us to live our lives. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for making us new. And we pray that you would use us to make others new as well. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.